All right, let's open up to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 8. Last week I wasn't with you. We, my family and I were camping, and uh, we had a really great time. We didn't get eaten by any bears, so it was a especially good camping trip. And, uh, but even being away one week, it seems like a long time. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but seriously, when I'm gone for even one service, I feel like it just, it's really weird. So I'm glad to be here with you tonight, because I, I love to share the Word of God with all of you, and, and for us just to enjoy the Lord and enjoy His Word together. Such a blessing. So if you remember, the last time we were together, we looked at Second Samuel chapter 7, and chapter 6, remember, was when God um, put upon David's heart to, or David actually, he wanted to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Now that he was king over Israel and Judah, the next thing for him really was to bring the very presence of God, or so, you know, for the Jews, the, the Ark of the Covenant was a, a very symbolic, very important piece of um, furniture, if you will. I mean, it, it represented the very presence of God within it, the tables of the, the Ten Commandments and other things that were inside of it. But for David to have it finally in Jerusalem with him was just the capstone of his, of his kingdom. And so it was very important for him to do that. And he finally brings it in. Remember, the, their first attempt wasn't so successful. They did it in the wrong way. They brought it in on a cart like the Philistines had sent the ark away from their cities after God had plagued them for stealing the ark. And it went through all the Philistine cities, the Pentapolis, the five cities, gave them plagues of, 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 of boils and all kinds of awful things and plagues. And so finally, David realizes that it, as they look into the word further, which is always a good thing to do, wouldn't you agree, to look into the word of God? Because <laughs> oftentimes when we're doing something wrong, we need to visit, revisit the word of God because chances are it's, it's covered in God's word about what we're doing. And so David and the Levites, they finally realized that this shouldn't have come on a card. It should have come on the, on the shoulders of the Levites. So they finally bring it into Jerusalem, a great, great fanfare, a great moment in the history of Israel, and certainly a great uh, memory for the, the people of Israel, something they would never forget and something that David would never forget. So he brings the ark in, and then immediately on the heels of that, God speaks to him. David goes in before the Lord, and the Lord gives him what we call the Davidic covenant. It's a covenant that God made to David, and it's a, it's a covenant about God, God was going to use David and his seed, his descendants, and, 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 and certainly God was speaking of Solomon, at the very least, he was talking about Solomon, but even more importantly, he was speaking of the one greater than all of them, the one who would be the seed of the woman. Who is who? Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman. And through Solomon's reign, through the line of Judah, all the way down um, through time, that Jesus would be born of the tribe of Judah. And certainly, Jesus would reign forever and ever. Solomon, you know, God's uh, covenant with David w was this. And let me just read it to you. He says, I took you from the sheepfold, and this is chapter 7, beginning in verse uh, 8. 
He says, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all of your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, here is God's covenant with them. I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, and they will dwell in a place of their own, and they will move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all of your enemies. And also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house because it was David's heart to build God a house and God is like I all the time that I was traveling around in the desert with the Jews did I ever mention anything about having my own place God he, he who inhabits eternity he who inhabits the heaven of heavens who created all of it he's like I don't need any of that never asked for it it's a great thought David I love your heart for it But God says, I will build you a house, David. Not a physical house, although he was going to build him a physical house. But his house, his his descendants after him. And certainly he was speaking of his son. Jesus Christ was not only his predecessor, but also his descendant of David. And ultimately through Jesus Christ. And we know that even yet in the future, as we look forward in the millennial reign, Jesus will reign on a throne in Jerusalem, fulfilling this promise that God had made to David that, and let me just read it to you. (laughs) He says, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your own body, and of certainly he's speaking of Solomon specifically, and I will establish his kingdom. And notice, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And he goes on in verse 16, and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. And so obviously this is something that's going to endure forever. And we know that through Jesus Christ, it will endure forever. And David, as a response to that, goes in before the Lord. And he does what we ought to do, is give thanks to the Lord. You know, when God blesses us the way he blessed David, or when he blesses us in any way, it's good for us to give thanks to him. That's really what worship is. God, God does something, and we respond to what he does, what he has said, what he's doing, or what he has done. We respond to that. He's always initiating. We are responding in praise and glory and admiration to him. Amen? That's really what it's all about. That's what worship is. It's not about me conjuring up something within myself of my own volition. No, I'm, I'm responding to what God has already done. Even if he did nothing else for us. Even if he did nothing else. If he bore the punishment of, of our sin on the cross and did not a single thing. Even if he didn't even send his spirit to indwell us. Even if he didn't come upon us in power at times. Even if he didn't give us the promises that he has given to us the great and precious promises, even if he didn't tell us that he was going to come and redeem us bodily from the earth in the rapture of the church, even if he didn't tell us of the glories to come, do you understand that if none of that was happened, but he solely died on the cross for our sin, we would be always indebted to him forever. And just for that one act of worship on the cross, it demands a response. 
It demands a response. You can't be lukewarm or, you know, hotter. You know, you can't be cold or somewhere in the middle. No, you, your, your heart is on fire when you think of that. When I think that he, passed, he died on the cross for me and for you, sparing me from an eternal hell that I deserved. And by the way, all of you deserved it too, no offense. But we deserve that. And he says, no. But there's only one way that you can get to heaven, and that's through believing and trusting in my death on the cross to pay the price for your sin. And if we do that, we will be, we have the promise of eternal life. Is there any greater gift than that? And as a gift, what do you do when you receive a gift, and especially a gift like that? You give thanks. You give thanks. So that's what David does. He goes before the throne, and he gives thanks to God. A very right thing to do, a very reasonable thing to do. And so now we get into chapter 8. But chapter 6 and 7 are probably, in my opinion, probably the best moments in David's life. When he's finally brought in, he, his toil of being chased after by Saul are, are, have come to an end. Saul has passed from the scene. Now he's got Israel and Judah and everything is it's together. It's, it's like... The promises that God had given to him are coming to pass. And he's on fire. He's excited. And then God gives him this wonderful prophecy, this wonderful promise, the Davidic covenant. David is flying high. I think those were the best times because as we're going to see in a few chapters after tonight, we're going to see that his, his kingdom, his things are going to start to slow down a little bit. He's going to take a nosedive, but God's going to use it for his good. So after this giving of thanks, it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, it says, After this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amah from the hand of the Philistines. Metheg Amah, you can write above that, that's really nothing more than the city of Gath. Remember, Gath was the most significant of the five um, cities of the Philistines. The other ones were Gaza, Ashkelon, Ekron, and Ashdod. They were all there on the eastern uh, or the western coast of, of Israel. And these were the five great cities of the, of the Philistines, but Gath was the greatest. And notice David took it. He subdued the Philistines. And notice that David didn't wait for the Philistines to attack Israel. They had attacked Israel before, but now David, after hearing these promises of God, it's like he's just vibrating with excitement, thinking, you know what, God has called me, he's brought me to this place, he's told me what he's going to do, and I want to get after it. Have you been that excited when God tells you to do something? You're, just, you're like, okay, you've told me enough. Now I want to put feet on the pavement. I want to get at it. And I would encourage you to find out what God has for you and get at it. Get at it. It may just be a, being a witness in your workplace. It may be um, being a housewife and a mother, which is a great vocation, by the way. The greatest to be a mother and to be a homemaker. There's nothing wrong with those things. Or if you have a professional career, it doesn't matter. Be a light wherever you are. Do it as unto the Lord with all of your heart. Do it with all of your heart and get at it. Get at it. The time is slipping, slipping, slipping away. But David wasn't going to wait for the Philistines to attack. 
He was going to be proactive and go after them. He wasn't going to wait. And he was going to do something that hadn't been done up to this time. Everything that had been happening up to this point has been pro, you know, reactive. Saul being attacked by the Philistines, and then Saul going after them. But David is going to be proactive. He's going to continue to root out those peoples and those nations that God had ordained to be destroyed. Yes, a group of people and nations that God said they must be destroyed. And why? Is it because God is just some angry God who just can't wait to squash and judge people? No, quite the contrary. These people groups, these seven people groups were were groups that God had given hundreds of years to turn from their sin. You can go back to Genesis 15. And God told Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. But when it is full, I'm going to bring my people into that land, and I'm going to judge. I'm going to use my own people to judge those people. And guess what? God even used Gentiles to judge his own people. He did it with the Assyrians and the Babylonians. So no one is exempt from this kind of thing. But God says, these people, judgment must fall on them. And only God knows that line in the sand. And when you cross that line, he has a right. He has the right to bring judgment upon a nation, upon an individual. And you remember during the time of Joshua, when they first got into the promised land, they were supposed to root out all these people groups, these nations. And why? Because they were idolaters. They did untold horrible things as they worshipped their gods, lowercase g, as they worshipped Molech, and as they worshipped you know, all the different gods, doing animal and, people, and, and, and human sacrifices, sexual sin rising to the top, idolatry, and they never, never drove them out completely. There was always a remnant. And David now, he's like, you've given me all this, Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get at this. I'm going to get at it. And so notice, he's proactive. He goes after the Philistines. And what, you know, what about the Philistines? Where did they come from? You can write in your Bible in the margin, just write in Genesis chapter 10, verses 6 through 20. The Philistines were a non-Semitic people. A non-Semitic people. A Semitic people are people who came from the line of Shem, or Shemetic, or Semitic. That's where we get the word. But they remember, Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The ones who the Jews came from, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they came through the line of Shem. But there was a people group and people groups that came through the line of Ham that became idolatrous worshipers. They were among the Philistines. In fact, they came from the line of Ham, and then specifically through Mizraim, who was the sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. And Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, and Lahabim, Naphtulim, Pathrusim, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. And then Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And then the Jebusite, the Amorite, the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite, the Arvite, and the Zemurite, and the Hamathite. Afterwards, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed, and they dwelt in that land in the western shores from when they left Crete. They settled, they tried to go down to Egypt, they got kicked out of Egypt, ultimately settled on the shores of Israel there on the western shore. And these are the people. 
Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 7, what did God tell the people of Israel before they crossed over into the promised land? This is what he said to them. He says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, and he lists them, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, do these names ring a bell? They're the very people group that I just read for you in Genesis chapter 10. The Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show them no mercy. Nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall give your you shall not, excuse me, give your daughter to their son, nor your take their daughter for your son. For they will and here's the reason why. Does God have a reason for the things that he does? Yes. Sometimes as a as a parent, you have to tell your son or daughter no, and you can't give them a really good answer. You just got a gut a, a gut feeling and you say no. But why? Well, God tells why. And here's the reason that these people had to be destroyed. In verse 4 of Deuteronomy 7, For they will turn your sons away from following me. Notice what? To serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So there's a reason that God wanted them to be destroyed because he gave them time to repent and they would not and therefore they were ripe for judgment. And God didn't want his people to be destroyed because if they fell into idolatry, which they did, history bears out that, right? That's the reason they went into the Assyrian captivity, the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. That's why the, northern, or the southern two tribes went into captivity to Babylon in 586. That's why it happened, because they didn't root it out. Even after David, we're going to find that sin slowly crept in. I think the time of David and Solomon were the, the, the golden days of the Davidic dynasty. Solomon's kingdom, I mean, Solomon at his apex was incredible. People from all over the world were coming to hear him. The Queen of Sheba and others, you know, they're just like hearing this man's wisdom and, and the things that he's learned. And God is just blessing this guy, not only with wisdom, but monetarily. He was blessing. He had the best of both worlds. He didn't ask for the money, but the money came because he wanted what was most important. And that was the wisdom to govern God's people. And God says, because you didn't ask for that, I'm going to give it all to you, David, or Solomon. But Solomon's wives came from other, these other areas, these other nations. They came from those nations, and what did they do? They began to serve their false gods, and Solomon began to get smitten by these gods, and he began to worship them himself. And then toward the latter part of his life, he realized what a mess he had made. And he repented. But it was a devastating thing for him and for the nation. So back in our text, too, so that's who the Philistines were. David was proactive going after them. And then notice what happened. And he defeated Moab. He defeated Moab. Moab was another... Remember, um, Moab and the, the children of Ammon were the descendants of Lot. Remember Lot's incestuous relationship that he had with his two daughters after Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. His daughters got him drunk, and they each had a child by their father. One was named Ben-Ami, or the children of Ammon, or Ammon, and the other one was Moab. Moab. 
So he defeated Moab, notice, forcing them to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those who were to be put to death, and with one full line to keep those alive. And so the Moabites became David's servants, and they brought tribute to him. In other words, they paid taxes to him. So two-thirds of the, the Moabite population of men were killed. Why? This is a way for David to assure that that generation is not going to come after him. It, it, really, it, really puts a, um, it really slows down the possibility of them rising up with many men to come after David. And David, remember, heard from the Lord, I'm going to establish you and I'm going to give you all this land. And, and even in Solomon's reign, uh, Israel never obtained all the land that God had given to them. Never obtained all of it. They got close, but they never obtained it. And it's interesting that he would go against the Moabites because, do you remember who was the famous Moabite in David's lineage? Ruth. Remember Ruth the Moabitess? Naomi's daughter-in-law? Ruth was a Moabitess. She was in the direct line, in the direct descent of Jesus. Yes, a Gentile woman, Ruth. So Ruth was David's great-grandmother. Can you imagine? My great-grandmother came from Moab. And now, for some reason, he goes against the Moabites. We don't know of all the skirmish and, and, and the reason for it. And remember, it was Moab that David, remember when he was on the run from Saul. Where did he take his mom and dad? He took them to the king of Moab because that's where his great-grandmother came from. And they were safe there. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? And then not too long after he becomes king, there's a point where a line is drawn in the sand. We don't know exactly what it was, but it doesn't really matter. But David is expanding his kingdom, obeying what God had told him to do. I love that. You know, being obedient to God, even when it doesn't seem right. I mean, think about how you would feel if you had to go, if you were going and, and, and going to war and, and against these people groups that God had planned for destruction. Think of how hard that would be. I find that would probably be pretty hard. It's different if, one, if they steal from you or if they murder somebody in your family. It, the, the, the passion and the anger is already there, right? But for, for God to just say, these people... I have doomed to destruction because of their sin. Because of their sin. So notice verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah. And he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. Hadadezer, Hadad uh, is my helper, is his name. And Hadad was the name of a Syrian god. And so even in their names... They reverenced their, their false gods. But Zoba was this area north of Damascus, about 100 miles. And it was in this area that David went and defeated Hadadezer. And it says, David took from him 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and also David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. He hamstrung the horses. That way they couldn't be used in battle against them.
And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants, and they brought tribute or brought taxes. And so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. And isn't it obvious, as you see David, just that there's no defeats here. It's always, he's on the affront, and he's always successful now and winning these battles. And it's obvious that the Lord was with him. And I think his enemies shook and they shuddered because of that. When God is on a man's side, there's nothing that's going to stop him. When God is for someone, who can be against him? Isn't that what the scripture says to us? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's the truth. It's the truth. Do you believe it? When you're suffering difficulties, he's with you and he is for you and he is victorious. He's already won the battle. Do we know it? Do we believe it? Do we live like he's won the battle? Or do we, we live like defeated Christians? It's a good question. But remember, Saul, because of his weak character and his moral underpinnings, he was nowhere near as successful. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 1, it says that David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And we're seeing that being played out right now. Saul is, and his family are just kind of dissolved and, and going by the way. And David's, he is rising to affluence and rising. And why is he rising? Because he's a great CEO? Because he's got a lot of money? Because he has people in high places? Actually, he does. He has people, he has a person in high places. It's Jesus. See, it is who you know. <laughs> it's who you know, right? And so David took the shields of gold that, he had, that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem, and also from Betah and from Berathai, cities of Hadadezer, King, King David took a large amount of bronze. And when Toai, king of Hamath, which is an area even further north of Zobah, when he heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toai sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toai. So now David's got a faithful ally now because Toai was sick and tired of, of, uh, of Hadadezer and he was glad that somebody finally stood up and pounded him. <laughs> That's really the bottom line here. But notice that Joram, because of his excitement and wanting to please David, he brought with him articles of silver and articles of gold and articles of bronze. And notice verse 11, King David also dedicated these to the Lord. He didn't take all the gold, the silver, and the bronze for himself. Any one of us, if we had that kind of booty, if, you know, we would take it for ourselves and, and spend it on ourselves, perhaps. But David instinctively knew this was for the Lord because that, those shields, all that material could be melted down, it could be smelted and used for other things for God's house. I think in deep in David's heart there was already the plan, there was already the, the thought, you know, I, I want to I do this. And certainly it was. But he knew he couldn't do it. He knew that his son would do it. And if I can't do it, David says, then I'm going to amass all the gold, the silver, the bronze, everything he needs, so that when he's old enough, I'm going to basically hand him everything he needs. And that's exactly what David did. What a great provider. What a great provider. Love that. But he would, 
he would no doubt use these resources for the temple. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 51, this is what it says. So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished, and Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. He put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Very unselfish man. What a great leader David was. I mean, he really was. He was a great warrior, but he wasn't just a bloodthirsty man who just wanted to kill people. No, he killed for the right reasons. He went to battle for the right reasons, but he was a compassionate man. He was a gracious man. We see that throughout his, his tenure of, in his office. A very kind and compassionate man, not bloodthirsty like his nephew Joab. No, David was made of different stuff. He was a kind man. Gracious, and not only that, very gifted musician, which I think is always pretty unusual. I mean, he was an artist. You know, most artists, you know, have never swung a hammer. <laughs> most artists have never been into battle, but David was both of these things. Quite an interesting fellow he was. I can't wait to meet him. So from Syria and from Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, David obtained all the spoil. Verse 13, and David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. And he also put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. Wherever he went. And remember that Edom was where the descendants of Esau lived. Remember Jacob and Esau? Well, Esau is Edom. And they dwelt in that land south of the Moabites, further south, and, and, and on the east side of the Dead Sea, further south below the uh, Moabites. And so, verse 15, it says, David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. And what a delightful people this group of people were, no doubt, to have such a gracious king. Remember when he brought in the Ark of the Covenant? He gave everyone a cluster of raisins and, and some food and, and gave them a, a thing of wine. And it was a, a very joyous occasion. He didn't have to do that, but he was generous. That was his heart. David was generous. He was compassionate. He was a good man, an honest man. We'll find out in the next week that he had some issues. And don't we all have issues? There's not a man here or a woman that's perfect. There's only one man that I know of that's perfect, and that was Jesus himself. But the rest of us, not so much including myself, of course. <laughs> you know, you think of it. David reigned over all Israel. David administered judgment and justice to all his people. And Joab, his nephew, the son of Zeruiah, remember Zeruiah was David's sister, so Joab was his nephew. He was over the whole army. And now Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahitub, Ahilud, was recorder, and I find it interesting that after Joab's shenanigans with killing Abner, who was King Saul's commander of his army, remember he killed him in cold blood in a city of refuge where he should have been safe. Joab kills this man in cold blood. 
Even though Abner had killed his brother, Asahel, remember? He did, he did that. But here, Joab, unprovoked, sometime afterwards, sneaks up on him, kills him. And yet David was so distraught, distraught by the whole thing. And he says, Joab, you and your family, your blood's going to be upon you. But he didn't put him to death. In fact, we don't know of any consequence of Joab's sin that he had done. But Joab, the son of Zeruiah, is now over the whole army. And Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And Saraiah was the scribe. We're going to see Zadok more in the future in Solomon's kingdom. Remember that Zadok was the rightful um, heir to the, the, the priestly line. Um, Ahimelech was the son of Abiathar. But God had chosen the sons of Zadok to be his priests. And that gets straightened out in Solomon's kingdom, which we'll find out in, in due time. But notice in verse 18, Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the, both the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were chief ministers. Kind of interesting group of people, Cherethites and Perethites. These really were David's bodyguards. These were men whose sole um, job really was to protect the king and also to execute judgment. They were executioners, and they were foreign mercenaries, really. We believe the Cherethites were actually from the island of Crete, or had a Crete um, background, and the Pelethites, many believe, um, their name literally means couriers, a courier, but many believe that they had some kind of uh, Philistine background, which David, remember, he had an affinity with the Philistines before in his deranged syndrome that he went through before he, um, before his, uh, before he came to, or before Saul had passed away. He made uh, friends with many Philistines in a not-so-good time in his life. But these men, believe we believe, are from the Philistines. And so now we get into chapter 9, and it says that, Now David said, Is there anyone still who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Are you kidding me, David? After all that Saul had done to you, how he hunted you down like a gazelle, in the, in, the, in, the, in the forest and how he, you know, for years, this went on for some seven, at least seven years, David was on the run. And now you want to show his family some kind of kindness? Yes, because David's heart was thus, right? That's the way his heart was. And I love this. David never had a grudge against Saul. Even though Saul hated David, he would do anything to exterminate David. But David didn't have any problem with Saul. He didn't have any problem with the tribe of Benjamin. They were his brothers. The Judah and Benjamin, they were brothers. He didn't have any problem with him, but Saul and his family had a problem with David. But now David becomes king. He didn't have to do this, but just out of the kindness, again, of his heart. And doesn't that sound like the heart of Christ? You know, after all that we have done to him, after all mankind has done to him, I'm convinced that if Christ were to come back today, he would still be crucified, probably quicker. And yet, Jesus loves. 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What kind of love is that? That's the kind of love that changes lives. When a love like that gets a hold of your life, it changes you forever, and you are no longer the same person ever again. That kind of love captured, raptured my heart, and yours, hopefully, as well. But that was David's true heart. And there was a servant, now notice, of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. That's a really good way to respond to the king. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still the son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. And then King David sent, and he brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. And now when Mephibosheth, that was his name, that was Jonathan's son's name, Saul's grandson is named Mephibosheth, and also David's best friend in the whole world, his one confidant that he had, Jonathan, his son, Mephibosheth, is still alive, and he's lame in his feet. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, we, we were reminded what caused him to be lame on his feet because right before, right when the news of Saul and his other, his sons, his other sons, when they had died on the battlefield against the Philistines, in verse 4 of 2 Samuel 4, it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. So somehow when she held him and she was running, she tripped or he fell and he broke his leg. He did something where it had permanent damage where he couldn't walk again. And that was out of grief. The poor woman had just heard about that her son's you know, father and grandfather were just killed in battle. What horrible news could that be? How much more horrible could it be? But notice what happened. So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the, all the land of Saul your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Are you kidding me? That's like going to being in the White House and being fed, you know, sitting at the president's table. And then Mephibosheth, he bowed himself and he said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I am? I'm, I'm worth nothing, David. My, whole, my grandfather tried to kill you, and yet here I am, and you've, you're restoring me all my, all my grandfather's land, and you're not only doing that, but you're going to give me food to eat? You're going to have the servants wait on me at your table? Who does that sound like to you? It sounds like Jesus taking us while we were in that lowly state, in that helpless state, hopeless state. There's nothing we could do for ourselves, reckless, hopeless, in our sin, completely, you know, uh, condemned. And then God says, oh, but you're not condemned. Take my hand. I've got a buffet for you. I've got a life for you. And have you experienced that life tonight? the very life of Christ. I know that you all have. 
Pray that you would experience it even greater and even to more frequency, a greater frequency, to greater depths and heights and widths, and that we would all just experience the great love of God like that, the compassion, the grace of God, the mercy of God. Look at the mercy. It's just dripping all over this. I actually wept in my office this morning reading this again. I was thinking, I put myself in his shoes, you know, Mephibosheth, and I thought, man, I was there. All of us were, right? At some point, you hit that bottom and you realize, have you had that moment? We just realize you're, you're nothing. You're worth nothing. Literally, I'm not worth nothing to anybody. And I think the one who spoke it all into existence says, oh, I got a great plan. Rise up. I got a plan for your life. I'm going to do something great in your life. And you're like, I don't deserve it. It's not about you. It's about me. It's about my goodness toward you. <laughs> what do you do with that? You worship right? That's what you do. I've been, I love worshiping God. I love worshiping Jesus Christ. It's a very, it's our reasonable service, it tells us in Romans 12. It's our reasonable service to worship him. After all that he's done, he's pulled us out of the miry pit. Out of the miry pit, he's pulled us. How could I ever repay him? I give my life to you, God. Would you give your life afresh tonight to him? Say, God, from now on, I'm done with my plan. I want to know what your plan is. Even if it means a change in vocation. Even if it means going to a different state, a different country, or staying right here in the United States. Believe me, missionaries were sent from other, you know, we used to send missionaries from our country to other countries so that they might know Christ. Now we need them to come back. But Mephibosheth said, what, are you, what is your servant that you should look upon me as such a dead dog? And David did this. Why did he do this? Just out of the benevolence of his heart? Yes, but David was also faithful. Why? Because remember, before the second to the last time that David and Jonathan ever saw each other, before Jonathan would die on the battlefield, remember Jonathan spoke to David. You might want to write this in the margin of your Bible. It's 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 14. 1 Samuel 20, beginning in verse 14. And what does it say? Jonathan spoke to David. He said, You shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, David, that I might not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. Jonathan knew in his heart of hearts that David was going to be king, that his father's reign would end and that David would be king. And David and Jonathan were knit together. They had a love for each other that surpassed the love of women for a, a woman for a man. And this was not some kind of weird, strange thing. No, this was just genuine, brotherly love. I love that. They just, they loved each other. They were committed to each other. They would both fall on the sword for each other. Have you have a friend like that? My goodness. I wish I had a friend like that. Somebody who would just do, you know, who would fall on the sword for you. But notice what he says. This is the covenant that they make between themselves. He says, but you shall, and, and Jonathan is speaking to David. He says, you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not yet when the Lord has cut off every one of your enemies, of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him and he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so he made this promise, this vow to David. David made the vow to Jonathan that when, if something happens to Saul and Jonathan, that David would not 
snuff out his family. And David was true to that. And here is proof positive. In this chapter, in chapter 9, David says, Is there anyone of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? (gasps) Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. Oh, I love, can you imagine the stories they told? At the dinner table, I remember when I fought with your, with your father. I remember when we made this covenant between you. I remember the, just the love that we had for each other. And I bet Mephibosheth just going, wow. Just reminiscing about the, the deep friendship, the deep connection that they had together. And David kept his oath that he made. He didn't ignore it, even though he was king over Israel and could have just ignored it. But David was a man of his word. He was a man of integrity. He, but he was not without his faults, was he? In Numbers 30, verse 2, it says this about making an oath. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall not do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. God holds vows and promises very, care, very seriously, and we need to be very careful. I'm trying not to vow or to promise anybody anything, because it really is it in my power to make a promise that I don't even know, I don't even have control over things to be able to make the promise sometime. You know, you can say, I promise I'll be there tomorrow, but hey, guess what? Tomorrow morning your car gets flat. Your alarm clock doesn't go off because an electric storm knocked out your power. You wake up late and you were supposed to be there an hour ago. Can I make a promise and follow through with it? I can't. So why should I make promises? It'd be better if I say, if the Lord wills, I'll be there. Right? Instead of making an oath, oh, I'll be there for you, brother. I'll, I'll be right there, you know. And then people are like, you said you were going to be there. Where were you? In my darkest hour, where were you? Where, you're nowhere to be found. I thought you were my friend. Oh, man, I, I'm sorry. My favorite show came on. And it was the season finale, and I'm really sorry, man. Jesus said this. Again, you've heard it say that, and this is Matthew 5, 33. It's been said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And isn't that the truth? Always excuses. Excuses, excuses. I can make all the excuses in the world. It's just better to make my yes, yes, and no, no. Don't say, well, you know, maybe. Make your your yes. Don't make a promise that you can't keep. Don't make a vow that you can't follow through with. Are you a person of your word? You know, there, there was a time in America where a man's word was his bond. You could actually shake hands with another man that you borrowed money from and promise to pay him that money back, and it was as good as done. There was no need for some kind of contract or, or, or legal binding certificate or some kind of legal document. It was just a shake on the hand, and it was good as done. But now, there's a contract for everything. You go into Wegmans, there's a little spill on the floor. Some kid came in with his Slurpee and spilled a little on the floor. They haven't even gotten to it yet, and somebody behind him slips, and they sue Wegmans for $3 million, right? 
And the guy's coming with the cone that says caution, you know. Now they got to put a, somebody sneezes on the floor and they got to put a caution thing because God forbid somebody slip on it and litigate. I mean, haven't we gotten crazy? We're just so happy, anything and everything. My brakes failed on my brand new car. I'm going to sue, you know. I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. <laughs> Everything's a contract. Everything's a promissory. And I promise to pay it back. No, I don't. But notice verse 9. So the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul. Because Ziba was now going to be a servant of Mephibosheth. Because Ziba was a servant of his grandfather. So now Ziba is going to, and his sons are going to take care of all of that land that is going to be tilled for, um, for produce, for grapes and whatever. He says, you therefore, Ziba, you and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, for Mephibosheth, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. And I love that. You know, again, that that's the attitude of a king, our king, Jesus. When he asks for us something to do, do we argue with him? No, I don't really feel like it, Lord. I'm not really called to do it. I'm not really gifted to do that. Can you imagine? I mean, when God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and speak to him, what was Moses' excuse? I really can't speak that well. What do you mean you can't speak well? You grew up and for 40 years you were in the very best schools. You went to Harvard and Yale and Egypt you could write thesis papers in different languages, probably. Now you can't speak? Can't speak. Excuse. But our response to the King of Kings ought to be, Lord, whatever you want. Whatever you want me to do, Lord, that's what I want to do. I remember making that commitment to the Lord, and I hope I'm still in that same heart. It's good to be in that place. And I, I pray that we all, you know, get to that place or be honest with yourself. I, I think it's good to be honest with the Lord and say, Lord, my heart is really not there yet. There, there's just, you know, I want to give you the keys to my whole entire being, but there's some compartments, there's some rooms that I'm just not ready to give you the key yet. And God says, that's okay. I'm not going to force you. I'm not going to force you. Isn't that what a great father does? When you think of Jesus being the, you know, we're the bride of Christ and he's the bridegroom. He doesn't force his bride and say, you better do this, you better do the dishes and you better do this and you better do that. No, he, he doesn't do that. We come of our own volition, but if we really understand the depth of what he has done for us, of all that he has delivered us from, it ought to be something like, I get to do that, Lord. I get to give you my life. I get to, give, I get, I, I, I get to do whatever it is that you want me to do. And guess what? And what he calls you to do, he's going to make sure that you're prepared to do it. We don't always feel like we're prepared. Did Moses feel like he was prepared? He says, just go do it. Don't worry about your speech. He loves to use the foolish things of the world, the things that are abased and that nobody else wants. The world you know, just casts it away. God says, I'll, I'll take that. The bin right there that says good for nothing, 
I'm going to do my greatest work in that bin right there. I'm going to start pulling people out. I'm going to make you a prince. I'm going to make you a king. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Things you had no idea that I could do. Think of, think of it. It's just amazing. Think of Joseph being sold into slavery to the Ishmaelites. He's like, he's a slave now. His brothers have gone. He's like, I'm dead. I'm just going to grind away in some prison somewhere. And God says, oh, no, I'm going to make you number two man in the whole world. How's that? Yes, he does things like that. He loves to take those things. Mephibosheth says, what shall I? I'm like a dead dog. You going to do this for me? And Ziba is so willing to be a servant. Be willing to be a servant of God. Whatever he calls you to do. It may be something big. It may be something small. I remember for years, I just cleaned toilets and I washed tables and I wiped floors. For years, here in this fellowship. And I loved doing it. I didn't have a problem with it. I can still do a toilet. I can still clean a toilet. I don't have a problem with cleaning toilets. Just be a servant, and whatever you find yourself do, just do it as unto the Lord, and be thankful that you get to do something for him that makes a difference. Yes, all these little things make a difference. We're all many members of one body, right? We can't do all the same thing, but there's some people who get to do the bigger things or what we perceive as bigger. But let me tell you something. Every little thing in the kingdom of God is important because it all works together for what? To glorify him. Whether it's a clean sidewalk, a, a clean urinal, uh, a clean bathroom, a clean floor, uh, chairs that are straightened out, uh, a vacuum floor, a neat-looking place that doesn't have bees. All these things are important, Right? And Ziba is just like, I'll do whatever you want, king. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a younger son whose name was Micah. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. I love that. And so Mephibosheth, verse 13, dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Again, we are going to have to stop there. I was anticipating getting into the next chapter, but we're going to take communion. But as we take communion tonight, think of just the, the, the type that we see here in David and his response to Mephibosheth, this poor, helpless, beggarly person who nobody had eyes for, who just kind of like the off-scouring, you know, just go away, boy, you bother me kind of thing, right? We were there, weren't we? I was there. And to think of the compassion of Christ. We see it in David, the heart of David. And certainly the Lord put that in David. David had no credit to give to himself for what God was doing. He was molding and shaping this man. In fact, all the things that David went through was, was, was coming out in his character. His character was being molded and shaped by God, even the most difficult times in his life. The great heights when he slew Goliath to the running and acting like a fool before you know, the, um, the Philistine king. Doing those foolish things. All those things, God says, I'm working it for the good, David. And that to me is why Romans 8.28 is such a sweet scripture. All things, not just the good things, but I think sometimes the things that we are ashamed of, the things that we wished had never happened, the things that had been done to us, the things that we have got ourselves involved in, 
all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purposes. Because when God can rescue me from drug addiction, when he can rescue somebody from sexual addiction, when he can rescue somebody from whatever it is, you name what it is, you become a trophy now that can go and you can share that same message with somebody else who's wrapped up in that same sin that you used to be in. And you can say, hey, listen, I used to be there. I used to be the guy in the alleyway with the needle hanging out of my arm. I used to be that drunk on the floor vomiting all over the place. I used to be that. I used to be a thief. I used to be a robber. I used to kill people for a living. But guess what? I'm saved. And I know where I'm going because of him, because of Jesus Christ. And you look at David, how he treated Mephibosheth, and that's the way Jesus treats us. Sit up at the table. Aren't you going to sit at his table one day? Aren't we all going to sit at his table? I tell you what, I'm looking forward. I can't imagine what the food's going to be like. I don't even care what it is. It could be nothing but leafy vegetables, but they're going to be the best-tasting leafy vegetables. We could have a vegan meal. I don't really care. It could be a, a cow, and there could be like you know, filet mignon and cracked crab and everything else and melted butter to perfection. No impurities in the butter either because it's God's butter. There's nothing floating to the top after it's been heated. It's crystal clear like gold. I, I, I digress. So think about that as we take communion tonight. And Sarah's going to come up and lead us in a song of worship. And I love the rain from above coming down. It's like a blessing. You can hear it. Let's pray. And uh, as Sarah is leading us in worship, just feel free to come up and grab the, the, uh, the bread and the cup are one unit. Okay, just bring it back to your chair and we'll take it together after the song. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and just pray that, Lord, you'd receive, Lord, our, our worship. And just thank you, Lord, for the great worship that you demonstrated on the cross as you took the sin of mankind and each one of us forevermore on your shoulders. And you paid the price for us, Lord. Your body was broken, your blood was spilled for the atonement of all of us. And Lord, how we are thankful for that tonight. Pray that you would just receive our worship now in Jesus' name. Amen.